you get to be right here front and center uh, to hear this challenging word this morning. I'm warning you in advance. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, please open them to the Gospel of Luke. It is our pattern as a church. We go through books of the Bible. Uh, we've been in Luke for almost a year and a half now. Um, we have had some breaks to look at some other things like Mother's Day a couple of weeks ago and so forth, but it is our pattern to work our way through books of the Bible. We're in Luke chapter 11, We're going to be looking at and unpacking verses 37 to 54. So this is an extensive passage. Usually my pattern would be to read it for you first, and then we would pray and unpack it. But we're going to dive in today because I honestly believe that the way this, this event takes place, it's kind of a good way to just unpack it verse by verse as the story unfolds. So we're going to do that today. So just a little bit of a, an update where we are because we've been out of the gospel for a few weeks. Uh, I told you, if you'll remember, back at the beginning of chapter 11, that we were moving into another one of these extremely important, crucial turning points in the gospel and in Jesus' ministry. Two things are happening that Jesus knows are happening. The first is, is that he is now headed towards Jerusalem. And so he, he's headed towards the end of his earthly ministry and life, and he knows that. And so the second thing that he knows is, is that now is the time that I need to focus. I need to focus on my disciples. I need to prepare these men in particular that are following me as the apostles and the, the, the people who will build and lay the foundation for my church, the men and women who are following me. I need to prepare them for life and for ministry because it's not going to be easy despite the fact that they're going to have the Holy Spirit. I need to prepare them. So he, he begins a process that we saw at the beginning of chapter 11. He teaches them the Lord's Prayer. Well, what better way to prepare them for ministry, right, is you're going to need to pray, right? The good news is they asked him for that, which is great. And so that's been the turning point. That's the big turning point in this gospel at this point. And he's going to, sure, we're going to see crowds. We're going to see the Pharisees today. They're always looking. They're always hanging around, right? And, and we're going to see them, but in every chapter from 11 through until about uh, basically 20, we're going to see that Jesus is turning all of his teaching, all of his lessons to the disciples. So every event even is being orchestrated, including this one today, by the Holy Spirit, by Jesus, as not only an opportunity to have some Pharisees and lawyers turn from their hypocritical hearts and follow him and trust him, but so there's disciples will understand that. So this, this is the one thing. Today we're going to see this unpack in a major way, but really over the next two or three weeks, there's one thing that Jesus has on his mind that he feels is absolutely critical that his disciples understand and that they're wary of. Next week we're going to see how wary he suggests they should be of this. And of course this thing, this one thing is and it's the thing that could literally destroy not only their personal walk with Christ, your personal walk with Jesus Christ, but their ministry, your ministry, my ministry, our ministry. It's one word, hypocrisy. It's, it's big. I, I asked my wife earlier this week because I've been studying this for years, right? This chapter, these things. And I'm, what, why was this such a big deal for Jesus? Why? I mean, sins. There's all kinds of sins, right? And pride, of course, is, is one of the biggies here. But then, what's with this hypocrisy thing? Why is he so focused on it? Well, we're going to scratch the surface today. Well, we're going to go a little deeper than the surface. 
and see some really interesting things about this. So let me start off by just being gentle and kind with all of you this morning, because this is going to be a tough passage. So let me just put it on the table here this morning for all of us to understand. You are all hypocrites. Thanks for coming. Right? You're welcome. So am I. The reality is it's, it's the biggest challenge that human beings have is being hypocritical rather than being honest and truthful all the time. It's our challenge. So the mistake that we could make, this mistake that many people over the years have made as they dive into this passage, as they hear it taught and they hear the words of it, is to, is to make this mistake is that when you hear this you go, oh yeah, listen, of course. Those terrible Pharisee guys, of course they were hypocrites. Right? They're, they're such an easy target, aren't they? You know, they had the big black hats. They were just these religious dudes, right? I made that up. I don't know they had black hats. But, but, but the reality is they were these religious dudes, and they're the easy target. But that would be the mistake. Because then what we do is we do what they do. We pat ourselves on the back, and we say, oh, I'm just glad I'm not like those Pharisees, right? That's the same thing they did related to those who weren't as holy and righteous as they are. So that would be literally, I believe, an exercise in totally missing the point. Fun so far? <laughs> I think so. Let's dive in. Here's your sermon outline for today. It's an interesting one. I'm titling the sermon, Oh, the Woes, go figure, and hope to show you three things. First of all, the awkward dinner guest. Guess who he is, right? Secondly, woes of the heart. And thirdly, woes of the mind. Let me pray for us one more time. Uh, Heavenly Father, once again, thank you for this day. Thank you for gathering us here. Holy Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit, I need you desperately right now. Um, I want to thank you for uh, the inspiration that was given to Luke to speak to those who were witnesses to this event and record these events for us so that we would actually know this story, this event took place. But Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, through the <laughs> minute things that you've shown me, through the, even my own hypocrisy, Lord, I, I, oh, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would, you would teach us mightily here today, that these words would be coming from you, from you, Lord Jesus, and not from me. And so I pray that you would just, A, yes, yes, do the work on our heart that's necessary. Cut us to the heart where necessary. But also I pray for encouragement. I pray that we would see how much we need you, Lord Jesus. And so I just pray for your blessing upon us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, the awkward dinner guest. So let's see how the story begins, right? Verses 37 and 38 say this. While Jesus was speaking, right, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Just two simple verses, right? It's kind of set the stage. Well, we got to look back a little bit into chapter 11. You remember what has happened. I did mention about the Lord's Prayer. But then what happens is just shortly after that, Jesus, just a, a, a guy who's got a demon, and this demon has caused this man to be mute, Jesus casts the demon out. 
And it's a miracle. It's just an amazing miracle of what Jesus does for this man. And this is just ongoing. It's been going on throughout his ministry where he's raising people from the dead, healing the sick, you know, the lepers, right? And, and, and at the same time, casting out demons all the time in his ministry. And so he does this, but then what happens is, is these Pharisees are like, well, sure, uh-huh. He's doing that in the power of Satan. I mean, they accredit the power that Jesus has through the Holy Spirit for the miracle that he's done to Satan, which is ridiculous, terrible, and Jesus just takes that. And then others are like, yeah, Jesus, in order for us to believe in you, we need more signs. We need you to do something more, a few more tricks. Come on, keep it going, you know, feed us. Where's some free sushi? More of that stuff. So Jesus then, just before this passage, he launches into a little story, a little mini parable, right, about the lamp and the light that comes from that lamp. And really, it's, it's it, the, the, his point to the Pharisees, because he's really speaking to them, although training and teaching his disciples at that moment when he gives this mini parable, his point to the Pharisees is very clear, who wanted to see more signs and were claiming that he was in league with Satan, is this. It's not that, listen guys, it's not that you need more light. It's all around you. Light is following me everywhere I go. Uh, the words that come out of my mouth are light. They're truth. All of these miracles are light. It's, it's exploding in your presence here today over the last year and a half because I am here. I am the light, the way, the truth. Your problem is not that you need more light. Your problem is that you're blind. Right? They loved him, didn't they? I mean, this is just so nice, this kind of, well, then, while he was speaking, we arrive at this text today. So here we go. One of the Pharisees asks, asks Jesus to dine with him. The Greek word there uh, literally speaks about lunch. It's not a dinner word, it's about a lunch. So it's kind of like a brunch setting. So this is interesting. One of the guys, one of the guys who's just been part of the crowd that is ascribing the power that Jesus has used to cast out this demon to Satan, one of these guys says, hey, I'd like to have you for lunch. <laughs> Jesus just willingly goes. So uh, this would be, as I've said, a brunch setting, and like many of his other brethren, um, Pharisees, they're invited as well. And, and as I've already implied, some of Jesus' disciples were probably there as well, because otherwise, how would we have gotten this story, right? Luke went to eyewitnesses to get the gospel that he wrote, because he himself did not personally meet Jesus. And so that's why we, in fact, actually have this story. So notice this. Jesus accepts the invitation without hesitation. It's rather amazing, really, isn't it? I mean, just imagine it this way. You know, someone has been disparaging you uh, with horrible comments uh, on, on Facebook, on Twitter, or whatever it is, and, and they're, like, they're calling out you in front of your friends and really, you know, like all kinds of horrible things they're saying about you, and then all of a sudden they say, hey, come for dinner with some of my Facebook friends. I'd love to have you over. <laughs> I don't know if, about you, but I'm not sure I'd want to go. So, of course, some of us would say, well, yes, but he's Jesus, right? And so he knows how to handle this situation. And, and so he is Jesus, and he will willingly go into this situation. But here's one thing that I want to make very clear here for us, and we need to see this. 
This is not the typical version of Jesus that we are given in our world and culture today, right? In the church, for that matter. You know, he's this, you know, God is love, you know, Sermon on the Mount, you know, do not judge. You know, he's this kind and gentle and loving man. Of course he is. But he's also this Jesus that we see here today. He's God. And we need to see this very, very clearly. As Jesus enters this man's house, his decision to go to this luncheon is calculated. It's intentional. And he plans to be what he is, completely disrespectful to his host. That's what Jesus does. Why do I say that? Well, look what happens. He deliberately goes straight to the table and sits down. He reclines at table, it says in the Scripture, right? That's not what a good Jewish rabbi, what a good Jew should do, right? I mean, the protocol is very simple. You're greeted. Someone might actually wash your feet at the door. A servant might do that. In another parable, or a story, pardon me, of a Pharisee, we find out that no one did that for Jesus, Right? On this occasion, though, I mean, you go to the washroom, you go to the, the bowl, the basin's over there, and you wash your hands, and you, do, you make a public show of it, right? And then when you sit down at the table, it's like doctors ready before an exi- and a, a surgery, right? You got your hands up, and everybody can see that your, your fingers and hands are all wet. Do you think I'm making this up? No, this, is, this was the idea. Jesus doesn't do it. He goes right to the table and says, where's the food? Time to eat, guys. So he deliberately does this. Now, listen, uh, obviously that may sound like, like the logical thing to do, right? I was thinking about this as I was writing this up this week. was like many times we'll have, you know, families over from our church, and they got the kids, and we were about to have dinner, and good, good, good parents that you are, you'll go, okay, kids, off to the bathroom and wash your hands. Right? I mean, in our culture today, and even then, it's logical from a hygiene perspective, right, that you would be washing your hands. But this wasn't about that. This was about ritual cleansing. This was performance for the sake of showing how holy, pure, righteous, and perfect we are. We keep it all. The uh, Pharisees were guilty of developing a, a group of teachings, hundreds of them, by the way, additional laws above and beyond the commands and laws of God, beyond what the Bible teaches. They ended up writing a book and collecting them all in that book. It was called the Mishnah. Right? And, and it was here, these things were important. That, that we, it's very important for us to understand that it was not in the Bible. They had they'd taken the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, the other Levitical laws, and the other laws of the Old Testament, all good, all designed for healthy living, and, and so that we would flourish as human beings and avoid sinful life and all those kind of things. But they, that wasn't good enough, right? In fact, they had to make up many, 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 many more. The reality is, is they ended up making up so many minute details of the laws that they became better at majoring in the minors than on the major teaching. And so this was a ritual cleansing thing. It was part of actually oral tradition. And so the important thing for us to understand is that this was purely man-made. And this particular cleansing thing was one of about a hundred different rules and regs that they had made up, I'm not going to call them laws because they're rules and regs beyond the law, that they made up that, listen, separated them, which is what their name Pharisee literally means, separated ones, from the common 
ordinary, less than holy, righteous, and perfect plebs in the culture. And so they built their, their whole testimony, their whole uh, purity, their whole righteousness was built on the fact that look, look to the lengths that we will go to show how righteous and pure and holy and perfect we are. So let me be also careful here. Before we throw these Pharisees completely under the bus, we need to understand this as well. Not every, not every Pharisee had gone over to the dark side of bad religion. Listen, in that culture in that day, many Pharisees were seen as awesome pastors, godly men of the word. Not all of them had gone this far. A great majority, but not all of them had gone this far. That said, we see this one Pharisee at least, and probably most of his buddies who were there at lunch that day. He's completely astonished that Jesus didn't do this. Now, it's interesting that, how do we know that? It doesn't say that he said anything, right? But, but Luke records it, that he was astonished. Well, we probably know that from Jesus' response, because Jesus at this point decides, you know what? I'm going to make an example of you and your buddies in front of my disciples with a purpose. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. That's really kind and gentle, isn't it? No, it's... it's you, listen, you're invited into this wonderful luncheon in a respected man in the community's home, and we'll see next week that many, 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 probably thousands of people in the community knew this lunch was going on, and they're outside the open windows listening to some of this going on, and you're going to see how that really is attractive to many of these people next week, right? And so with many of his best friends and colleagues, and what do you do? What do you do when you're in that situation? Well, you look around the table, again, with all these men sitting there going, look at my freshly washed hands on the table. They're still a little wet. Do you notice that? Right? And even though you see that, you insult them. It's perfect, right? Isn't that what you would do? Right? Well, actually, listen, it is perfect if you think about it. Because Jesus has a purpose in mind here. He's not, he, he wants to train and teach his disciples something very important about hypocrisy, but he also wants to reach this man and his friends. He really does. And quite frankly, he's showing them grace by caring enough to teach them a lesson that might just open their blind eyes. I, I believe with all my heart that's his hope. He isn't trying to condemn them. So look what he does here. He compares their hands to, to the cups and plates that are on the table right in front of them. It's a beautiful illustration picture, right? And essentially what Jesus, Jesus is saying this. Imagine you're sitting at a table. You know, you're at our house. This would never happen at our house because my wife would kill me if I ever put out plates and dishes and cups like this. But imagine you're sitting at our table, right? And you're looking at these, these nice little stemless wine glasses and the, the plates and stuff like that. And you can see that the outside is sparkling clean. 
and you lift under the plate, and it's super clean. But on top of the plate and in the cup, it's, there's dirt. There's fingerprints. There's grime. Yum, right? That's the picture. That's the visual. And why? Because Jesus, listen, Jesus is essentially saying this. God sees what we do, and he sees our heart motivation behind it too, right? He sees it all. And so that's the visual. The outside, but he also sees and knows the heart of everything. In this case, Jesus is saying that their outward appearance of cleanliness is deceiving because the truth is that your heart is desperately wicked, full of greed, anger, and wickedness of all sorts. Luke records this. It's not kind on one level. It's uber kind on the other level. It's the truth. He wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. He's not done. This gets even better. Before the food arrives, apparently, Jesus then says, You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give alms, as alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And, and so, look, Jesus makes this very clear, doesn't he? Th these words, you fools, th this is very intense language, very intense. And Jesus, again, it, it, it's not a, an attempt to condemn or be mean. It's, it's, you're blind, guys. Literally, he's saying, guys, wake up. Don't, don't you know that the God that you worship is not some you know, mute, distant deity who, who's not involved in what's going on? Don't you know that he knows all things? He knows your very thoughts, and yet he doesn't vaporize you immediately? No, instead he loves you, and he comes to save you from yourself. He essentially says, look, this God that you, you should know about, that you've been studying, that you, you should be proclaiming to the people. He knows everything there is to know about you. And he's not impressed, guys. He's not impressed by your outward expressions. Not these anyway, because the motivation of the heart is just all, all wrong. When Jesus says, give us alms, basically what he's saying here, what he implies in this passage or this section is, he, he's essentially saying, look, the, these things that you're doing externally, and he's going to get into that about giving in the next bit here, but he's basically saying rather than giving that, doing that outward stuff, giving that impression, give up your sinful hearts. Confess that. Give that up. Take those hearts of stone and I'll let me make them hearts of flesh and give you a new heart. And you know what? Then you'll be clean on the inside and the outside. He, he's really trying to reach their hearts, isn't he? He really is. I, I got to believe that some of them, some of them, I hope, although by the conclusion today you might go, I don't know. <laughs> but one would hope that some of them were getting the message. You know, I got to ask a question again. Why would he act this way? Why would Jesus act this way, do you think? Well, as I've implied already, it's actually the best apologetic when you're dealing with spiritually proud people. It's the best way to handle the spiritually proud. 
Just bring the truth to bear, black and white, pretty simple, ba-boom. It's not easy. It's certainly not easy to do that. So that's an interesting um, dinner guest, isn't he? <laughs> isn't he an interesting dinner guest? Let me ask you this. Would you ever do that? Would you ever be that kind of guest? We're so persecuted as Christians, aren't we, in this world today? It's so hard in this world today. Nobody likes us. Nobody likes our Jesus. We're so offensive. I don't think any one of us want to be this kind of guest. I surely don't. (laughs) I'm a guest right now preaching this sermon. It's fun. Jesus thinks this is completely appropriate. So that's our awkward dinner guest. Now we look at the woes of the heart. Jesus goes into the first woe, the woe of the heart. He says this, But woe, woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. In Matthew 23, where Matthew records this event, every time Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, there's a comma, hypocrites. Luke, for some reason, the Greek, pagan, Gentile who's come to faith in Jesus Christ doesn't see that as necessary, although next week he'll make the word hypocrite clear as the conclusion. But that's what it's literally saying. This word woe, by the way, it's not like, like we're in prayer this morning, it's not like we were talking about, it's not like, you know, like with a horsey, whoa, horsey. <laughs> like, it's not that, okay? This is not you know, like, whoa, you know. No, this is woe. You keep going in this direction, judgment. This is a serious woe. All of these are serious. And they're coming from Christ. And so it's interesting. He begins by going to, to a classic expression of their, uh, their pride, of their outward expression of their righteousness, right? These Pharisees were extremely religious. And listen, they were faithful when it came to tithing. It was a command of God. Still might be. They were faithful, man. But the deal was this, they they were not only faithful in showing up at synagogue weekly and walking up to the offering jar and making sure the clang was heard, that was really loud, but then they would also pull out their bag and they'd they'd lay out, you know, 10% of their mint that grew since the last week or their their various herbs and their, like, detail after minute detail. And and most of the, the, the regular Jews, most of the regular people of the synagogue were like, oh, that's, really? We have to do that too? well, if you want to be as perfect and righteous as we are. This is what they were doing. Again, they, what they, they had done with this is though is they'd taken the law of God, the command to tithe and give back to God a portion of your increase that, listen, He has given to you anyway as an acknowledgement that it all begins with Him and belongs to Him. And, and, and also it's, it's for the purpose of fueling the ministry of the synagogue, right? Of the temple, of the church, they had taken that which they had been faithful to and added very minute details to once again show how much better they were than everybody else. You know, it, it's interesting that when, when I think about that, when you see that, it's a, it's Jesus is like, you know, you can be the perfect Christian in a certain way, but again, if the heart behind that being perfect in that way as a Christian is greedy, prideful, selfish, 
it's virtually meaningless to God. It doesn't count. You see that? It really doesn't count in his economy. And so they're saying, look at this, even the herbs that had grown since last Sabbath, look, even 10% of that, wow, incredible. Impressive righteousness, right? In that day, it was impressive to most Jewish people. That's why these guys were held up in high esteem and why they were actually listened to quite often. But apparently, listen, not to Jesus, not to God. Jesus again contrasts the outer with the inner heart when he says this. He says, sure, you, you, do, you do that, and you know what? That's actually the easy thing to do when you think about it. Guys, that's the easy thing to do. I, God, gave you that increase. Oh, sure, we work for our money. I know, but the reality is, is that everything we have, we get up today, and you know what? The trees are growing. The fruits are growing. Everything's growing. Who's doing that? You? Me? No. He is. He's giving us the heartbeat, the breath to go to work, and, and everything's coming from Him. It's all coming from God. He gives us our money so, so that we can provide for us, so that's sure, but here's what we neglect to do. We actually neglect the harder thing to do. That's what He's getting at with these Pharisees. You're neglecting the harder thing to do. Now listen, hear me. It can work both ways. Hypocrites. But in this case, he's speaking to the Pharisees and he's saying, you neglect the harder thing to do, which is to show love and compassion to the poor, to the outcasts, the people who are less perfect than you. You neglect that. Hmm. Well, the truth is, of course, we know that only a resurrected heart can truly do that. Amen? That's what it takes. So now at this point, we need to, be, we need to make an important point or else uh, we're going to be guilty of completely missing the point, as I mentioned earlier today, right? As I said at the start, we're, we're, we're all hypocrites. We're all hypocritical in one way. It doesn't matter what side of the theological spectrum you're on or the political spectrum you're on. We're, we're all potentially guilty of it in our own way. And so I want to make sure we don't miss the point. You think, I think it's pretty easy for us to do what a lot of people have done since this teaching of Jesus was uttered and eventually written down by both Luke and Matthew. It's what we do even to this day with this teaching. Today, it's even more interesting how people do this in the church. Of course, many people just go, well, there you go. Bad Pharisees, right? They neglected social justice. They neglected that. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be a bad Pharisee. I'm going to give myself wholeheartedly to caring for the poor, for the marginalized, the oppressed. I'm going to be all about social justice. And then secondly, listen, many also see this today as Jesus saying, this is one of those passages where people say, well, Jesus is obviously not for tithing. <laughs> you know, in fact, he's basically saying, look, it's over. I, I actually don't read that there. If you're honestly going to do a study of the Scripture, you're going to find that Jesus never does that. Ever. In fact, he, he also tells us to pay taxes, Right? He seems to affirm it over and over again in the New Testament. And I understand there's a bit of a challenge with that in a lot of people's minds. Well, 1 Corinthians 9, you know, we're supposed to be, have generous hearts and we're supposed to decide for ourselves how much we're supposed to give. The word, operative word there is generous. It, it, it's related to grace, which means more than what we deserve. Actually, 
This is not the case. Now, some of you might say, well, look, give me some, a really good example of where Jesus affirms tithing. Okay? Let me show you the rest of this verse, because this is what follows. He says this, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without, look at this, neglecting the others. With Jesus, with God, it's a both and. It, it's a both and. I hope you can see that. So let's be careful that we understand what hypocrisy looks like to Jesus. Most of us in our world today, I think hypocrisy, uh, Webster's definition, you know, uh, you, you, you tell something, I'm going to do this, and then you don't do it, right? Or, or look at me, this is who I am, this is what I stand for, this is what I do and what I don't do, and, and then you do what you apparently don't do, and that's the hypocrite, right? No, it's actually much more than that in Christ's economy. If you hear the Word of God, listen, if you're the person who hears the Word of God, and it's clear to you, it's clear to you from a passage like this, from the Sermon on the Mount, that you must go into the world and, and love your neighbor as yourself to proclaim the gospel to the captives, those who are oppressed by Satan, by the way, and participate in social causes that you believe Jesus would want you to do, then yes, you must go. You must go. But hear me. Don't neglect. Don't neglect giving. Don't neglect gathering with the church, right? Don't neglect those things. Don't neglect being under God's Word, opening God's Word, and preparing yourself for the work of the ministry so that when you do go, you can bring the gospel into those situations, into those places where people are oppressed and poor and needing, what, just food? They need the bread of life, amen? I spent... 18 years in a relationship with Union Gospel Mission in downtown Vancouver, and uh, three of those years full-time in the ministry there, and, and then 15 years as a consultant helping them with their fundraising development. But one, one of the things that uh, we used to take a lot of criticism for this, right, by, by the, the secular media, and because we'd have them there when we did our Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners, and we'd feed thousands, three, four thousand people. But before every meal, the men and women who would come for dinner had to go through a chapel service. And in that chapel service for 20 minutes, they'd get the gospel. As a matter of fact, the street people used to call it their gospel, right? But here's the thing. We, we got criticism for that, not just from the secular media. We got criticism from the church. Oh, what are you doing putting people through that? Feed them, for goodness sakes. Feed them what? I loved uh, Morris McElroy, who was the president at that time. Irish man that he was, is... Uh, he's still with us today, but no longer present there. And he was just like, no, you know what? You, you, can, you can feed a stomach and, and just help a person become healthy in this life today. That's awesome. It's important. But if they arrive at death's door and you haven't fed, fed their soul, then you're not following the commission of Jesus. You're following something else. So if that's you, listen, if that's you and you're neglecting the other hypocrite. On the other hand, if you're a regular attender at church, right, and you give faithfully, and you know, you, you really, really give faithfully, and you attend Bible studies, all of them, conferences, right, and, and you wear the right kind of clothes, you know, you, 
Uh, you, you do the right kind of things during the services and otherwise. You, you, you do watch the right or movies or TV shows or not at all, right? You, you know, and, and you sit in your house at the same time posting on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, you know, critical comments about all these horrible things that are going on in the world and so on and so forth. And rather than going into the world and caring for these broken, messed up people who are just like you, then you are what? You're a hypocrite too. It doesn't matter where you are on the theological or political spectrum. We all have that tendency. And so I want to suggest to you, hypocrisy begins with this example about giving, both of our finances, our resources, and of ourselves. And then once it is taking grip in this area, well, then it's at risk of moving into the rest of our lives and that's what the rest of these woes are about. Let's look at them very briefly. Verse 43, Jesus goes on, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. So what flows out of a heart, listen, that is void of giving, of generosity, that knows how much it's been given and how generous God has been towards you, is pride. It becomes all about me. I just, I just want people to like my posts on Facebook, all of them. Please? No, okay, just. With the Pharisees, and when, when Jesus talks about the best seats in the synagogue, he's not talking right here where you guys are. Those are pretty good seats, right? No, he's talking about the seats on the stage in some churches, you know those, right? Where they get to sit up here and you get to see them all service long and they get to stare at you, you know, as, as the preacher's given the bad news, right? That's the seats that they loved. And then when they go into the marketplace, it'd be, oh, hey, pastor, oh, great sermon on Sunday, by the way. And, and, uh, and so good to have you be part of our community and come down here and bless us with your presence here today. They love that. Jesus is just saying, guys, you're turning the attention away from me, away from God, and onto yourself. That too is hypocrisy. That too is hypocrisy. He goes on in verse 44, Woe to you! For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Oh. This is a shocking statement. Um, the Pharisees, again, they, they get most of this language more so than we do in our day and age today. But here's what they would have heard by that. And it's shocking, but it's, it's actually remarkably good. It's exactly what we saw on Palm Sunday. Remember a few weeks ago? Jesus doesn't give the people in that day and and these Pharisees, or you and I, too much of a choice with him, the way that he teaches. We have one of two choices, crown me Lord or crucify me. <laughs> Those are the only choices, and, and he demands this. And so do you understand what he's saying here? It's beautiful, really. He's saying, listen, my dear Pharisee, hypocrite, if you continue to live your life this way, it will continue to amount to, listen, nothing. All of this pomp, all of this ceremony, all of this expression of righteousness, people are going to forget your name. It's going to amount to nothing. Your life is going to be a vapor. It's going to be useless. That's pretty harsh. The next verse kind of blows me away. Point number three, woes of the mind. One of the lawyers answered him and said, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
Every time uh, I, I read this, doesn't matter, I just, I have to chuckle. It's just, it's kind of amazing, really, when I read this. Now, these are not lawyers like in our day today, you know, like litigators. These are lawyers that, that were different from the Pharisees in the sense the Pharisees were the uh, religious leaders of, of a religious party whose job it was to uh, uphold and proclaim the Word of God and, and the laws of God, right, the law. And, and the lawyers were the, like the seminary profs, right, and, and the commentators. They were the ones who really dissected the Word and, and got it down right, and so the, lawyer, the Pharisees would actually know what to preach and the people so on and so forth. And so there was this difference between them, and honestly, it, it makes me want to laugh, and here's, here's part of the reason why is because of how relevant it is to our day today. Now, I don't know if most of you are aware of this, but we have a crisis in our universities in North America. Uh, quite frankly, it's a worldwide epidemic. It's a problem. It's a huge problem. Over the past 50 to 60 years, the seeds of the Enlightenment, you guys are mostly familiar with this, they've given birth to postmodernism, which is, is really uh, champions relativism, and most recently, listen, to something called critical theory. Now listen, if, if you want to Google that and go check it out, trust me, it'll be painful because it's, it's, it's very deep and lots of stuff behind it. But this is, our culture is moving in this direction and it's, so we don't have time to dig into it. Suffice to say this, what we see going on in our universities today and what is coming out is dramatically influenced by this. By everything that you see going on with identity, et cetera, in our culture today is being influenced by this. And so here's the deal. The prevailing culture in the universities and in our culture today is this idea of victimhood and oppression, right? And so there are the victims and there are, there are the oppressed. And this, at first it sounds like this is the ideal thing for Christians, right, for the gospel, except we're just not welcome on university campuses, right? And so how that is playing out today is that there are people who are um, like students and faculty who are teaming up together in universities and deciding that, no, this speaker can't speak here. This teacher can no longer, longer teach here. Why? Because they don't adhere to the doctrine of victimhood and oppression in the way that we do. And so you hear it spelled out in language like this. Essentially, it's, it's like, well, I feel insulted. They make me feel unsafe, right? They make me feel insecure. I feel hurt. I feel marginalized by these speakers. My goodness. 50 years ago, I know I'm da dating myself almost, you know, when I went to university, the whole idea was that academia was the place where you went where every idea on the planet was welcome. The dumbest ones, the smartest ones. Why? So we could argue about them and come to figure out life. Not today. Not today. And so now you look at the statement from this lawyer of 2,000 years ago, and I have to ask this question. Do you think Jesus would be allowed to speak on a university campus today? Christians aren't, right? And so when I read this, I'm like, this is so funny. Like, really? You insult us. Well, of course, Jesus didn't intend to do that whatsoever, right? He, he wanted to make the lawyers feel better because they're not as bad as the Pharisees, right? Let me read you the three woes that he gives to them, and then we'll conclude. Just one after the other. There's one point that he makes by this, and I'll tell you what it is. But here he says this. And so he looks at the lawyers, and he goes, Woe to you lawyers also. Let me throw you under the bus too, right? For listen, you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them. You build their tombs. And the last one is really the key. 
Woe to you lawyers. Listen. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So here's the difference between these two. Um, The Pharisees were hypocrites because their hearts were hardened by spiritual pride. They wanted to look outwardly good at the expense of being made clean, of being good. The lawyers, on the other hand, were full of intellectual pride. They knew the law inside out, front to back, upside down. They knew it. But here's what they did with it. They buried it. They made it so complex, so difficult to understand. I mean, people could, they hid it from people. I mean, they hid the prophets. This is what you read in this passage, parts that I, I haven't read, where, I mean, in the past, the prophets were killed. Why? Because they were prophesying to the people of Israel, repent. <laughs> they were bringing the truth, and so they were killed. And so what these guys were doing in that day, these lawyers, they were building monuments to these prophets, but in the process of doing that, all they were doing was memorializing the fact that they're dead. Not what they said. And so the bottom line is, is that the key in Jesus' mind is you're keeping the very word of God from the people. Woe to you if you do that. You know, when I think about going into ministry at Union Gospel Mission and, doing, and just feeding and not bringing the word of God, I hear woe. Do you not? They need the word of God. They need the word of God. Our passage ends with these two verses. As Jesus left the dinner, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something they might say. This is a definition of hard hearts. Hard hearts, eh? (laughs) Yeah, this has been hard that Jesus has been saying to them, but... So let me close by asking a few questions. What do you think Jesus might say if he came to dinner in your home tonight? Let's just bring this home, okay? What do you think he might say? Let me ask you this question. Is he invited to dinner in your home? Is he actually part of the conversation? At lunch? At dinner? Listen, friends, as we're going to see more deeply next week on the subject of hypocrisy, Jesus is so concerned about it because he's most concerned about really, I believe, two things in in this respect. He's concerned about our flourishing. It's not about punishing us for our sins. He wants us to flourish, to be the humans that he created us to be. Truly, he wants what's best for us, and that starts with having whole, healthy hearts that are a result of having trusted in him alone. And then secondly, going and giving of ourselves, our resources and the love of God as we seek justice for everyone by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ to the least, the last and the lost. I want to suggest this to you. Hypocrisy happens whenever you or I are trying too hard to appear righteous. Let me say that again. Hypocrisy happens when you or I are trying too hard to be seen as righteous. That's a heavy burden to bear, right? This realization, I think, if you, if you realize that today, should be alarming to anyone who feels secure in their own moral goodness. 
A secular person's sense of his or her moral goodness might be built on something people say today on being woke, right? Just as much as a religious person's sense of his or her own moral goodness might be built on their religious observance, how good a Christian they are, outwardly anyway. Listen, both, both paths are wrong. Both paths are wrong. Our religious performance cannot save us. Amen? Our social justice performance cannot save us, or anyone else for that matter. Our love for the poor cannot save us. Our dismantling of unjust societal systems can't save us. Our solidarity or alignment with the oppressed or our experience of oppression can't save us. None of those things can save us. All of those things are things we should be leaning into. There is only one that can save us. His name is Jesus Christ and His gospel. That's good news. Pray with me, would you?